Today's reading is by Marie Howe, and she wrote it to her brother um, who died of AIDS, and it's titled, What the Living Do. Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there. And the Drano won't work, but smells dangerous. And the crusty dishes have piled up, waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke of. It's winter again. The sky's a deep, headstrong blue, and the sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat's on too high in here and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again and again later when buying a hairbrush. This is it. Parking, slamming the car door shut in the cold, what you called that yearning. What you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not call, a letter, a kiss. We want more and more and then more of it. But there are moments walking when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, chapped face, and unbuttoned coat that I'm speechless. I am living, I remember you. Here is our beautiful and broken world. Let us keep our hearts tender to the touch and keep our eyes soft to the seen. And let us keep our words true to the speaking. Because this is what you and I are about. We know there is there's no answer but to love each other. And we bear witness against unnecessary destruction day in and day out. And then we come on Sundays here to gather in community to practice being the person that we look in the mirror and that we say that we want to be. We cannot do everything, but we can do something. And that something is just never nothing. So let us forget our perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. Say with me, that is how the light gets in. Heather and I are sharing the sermon this morning. So on this All Souls Sunday, this year I am feeling especially tender and connected to loved ones that we have lost. As many of you know, both Reverend Nathan and I lost our dads in this past year. My dad died in January and Nathan's in August. And I know that loss and grief immeasurable has touched the lives of you as well. Whether in this year or in years past, today Nathan and I chose to share our sermon, a series of questions to reflect on the experience of loss, 
the experience of grief, of theological questions, of remembrance. Because we know that this is what the living do. We wake up, we wash dishes, we go grocery shopping, we go to the doctors. We grieve, we cry, we remember, we ask the questions that have no answers. And we wrestle with questions like the ones we will be reflecting on today. Nathan will start us off with reflecting on our first question. Nathan, our first question is, what makes it so hard to cope with death? I'd really rather talk about the Red Sox. Um, so me being me, I looked up the etymology of cope. And I was, surprised, I was surprised to learn this, that it comes from a 14th century French word, copin, uh, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly. And it, this is what it means. It means to come to blows or engage in conflict. Only later, like, you know, 200 years later, coming to me to handle or successfully deal with. Hmm. So if that's what it means, what makes death hard to cope with is that we can't, we can't actually quarrel, can we? Because when it comes, when it comes, it, it finds all of us, whether, no matter how much money we make, no matter how much kale we eat, no matter if we're ready to go gently into that good night, as Dylan Thomas beautifully said, or if we rage and rage and rage and rage against the dying of the light. I think that's why I, I just love the song that, that you sang this morning, because it says, no hard feelings. And it sings about acceptance rather than quarreling or coming to blows with the reality of our mortality. And yet... Right? And yet. It stings. It, death has a way of arriving in a way that feels unfair. It comes in the night before we have said all that we need to and before we have said goodbye, before we have lived enough, before we have said I'm sorry, before we have said I love you, before we are done with our plans, because death always happens somewhere in the middle of the story. And here's the other thing. Even though we think we have grieved, right? Like we always like, oh, I handled it, <laughs> right? I coped. And we're just kind of like moving along. It like surprises the hell out of us. Two weeks ago, my friend Tim, who I grew up with, I've known since I was five, Tim loves cars. He's got a lot of money. He buys all these cars. And he texted me this photo of his new car. He said, you don't get this as clergy? It's like, ha, ha. <laughs> and <laughs> um, and I'm laying there on the couch in our living room. And I clicked on the photo. And I went to forward it to my dad who loved Tim and loved, my dad loved cars. He still got a 1961 Bug Eye Sprite in his garage that we have to figure out what to do with. 
And I haven't brought myself to delete his number from my phone, nor have I my brother Nick who died three years ago. I have still have their phone numbers in there. And so I literally hit, you know, you select the, the, the photo on the phone and I went to forward it to my dad. And it was only then, only then, that I realized he isn't there to receive it. So, no hard feelings, death, but you sneak up on us sideways, don't you? Reminding us of your presence when we think we have moved on. So Heather, your turn. What helps you cope with death? Where do you find healing in the grief? So in some ways, I think these are two different questions. For me, the question of what helps you cope with death is a question of meaning. How do you find meaning in death? And the second, where do you find healing in grief is a question of practices. In many ways, I cope with the fact of death by allowing it to compel me to seek meaning in life. My experiences of being close to death have propelled me to look closely at my own life, at the meaning I want my life to have, and to shape my life accordingly. Sometimes asking the big questions about meaning, though, can be helpful, but, and it can help us to find that healing to move through the hardest parts of loss. And sometimes all we need is actually that feeling of comfort to deeply know and feel that we are loved, to know that there is a love holding us and holding all that we love. So where do I find healing in grief? In some ways, that is much more simple, and I find healing in doing what the living do. Writing, watching West Wing on Netflix, going for walks even when I don't want to, making art, eating meals even when I don't have an appetite, singing, crying, reading about grief and knowing that my experiences are normal, petting the cat, gardening, looking at pictures, listening to music my dad loved, talking to my mom and my sister and my partner, going to therapy, using power tools, which my dad taught me to use safely and feeling connected to him, watching Madam Secretary on Netflix, napping, laughing, saying no to plans so I can have space to feel my feelings, saying yes to plans even if I don't totally want to go out because social time will be good for me, sharing my feelings, distracting myself, spending time with the baby that I live with, and watching The Good Place on, you guessed it, Netflix. I want to give every person who's grieving a Netflix subscription. <laughs> Your list, of course, might be different. And of course, there's the age-old advice to exercise regularly, try to get enough sleep even if you can't sleep, eat healthy even if you don't want to make food. And these are all good things to do, but even more so I've found that one of the most important things is to be gentle with yourself, to try to lessen the voice inside when it tells you that you should be doing grief better somehow. To encourage each of us to trust our intuition, to reach out for help when you need it, and to give yourself permission to grieve in whatever ways it is that it is coming up for you. 
to know that there is no one right way to do it and that the only way through it is through it. Another way that I find comfort in grief is in memory. So Nathan, how do we invite the presence of loved ones into our lives after they have died? What are the practices of memory? So many of us, I was thinking about this question, many of us know, um, if you've been around, um, Howard and Pam Teibel. And um, Howard and Pam, they moved to, to Colorado, I guess two years ago now. But Howard, in my first year of ministry back in 2003, he and Pam came to this church. Um, Pam grew up Catholic and Howard grew up Jewish. And they came here because their baby, Drew, who would have been, his birthday actually is early, it would have been, it was early November. He would have been 16, I think, like right about now. And Drew had just, had died like a couple weeks before that. And they were friends with somebody else here and they came that first Christmas Eve. And so I was just so lucky enough to get to know them and be with them and have that service for, for Drew. And Howard and Pam would always tell me, um, it is so hard to know how to grieve in a culture, he described it as the get over it already culture. And they are in a better place culture. How hard it was for them to live in that culture and because anytime they would mention Drew, it's like they were bringing a downer to whatever arena they were in at that time. And he also would talk to me and Pam too about how it was especially striking because death is so medicalized now and so private that we never are around it, right? unless it happens to us and a loved one. And this is why I think, just as an aside, the hospice movement is an amazing gift because it allows us, it allowed me to, to be with my dad, however briefly, um, in a, in a non-medicalized place. So I wanna mention these practices. And just yesterday, I was at a, a graveside service for a woman I didn't know, and I mentioned to the family that the only immortality that we are guaranteed of are the memories that we leave others. That, that's one way that we get to live on. And so I, have, I think I have five practices. And the first one is to not wait for the memories to, to visit us, to surprise us, like to sneak up on us, though they will, to, to not wait. That's number one. To num to, to Instead, number two, to bring that person with you to the places that you go. And I've been doing this to literally say out loud, to talk out loud, forget what people think about you. To say out loud, I was riding along through on my bike a couple weeks ago through this canopy of trees, and I said, to, I said out loud, Dad and Nick, that's my, my dad and my brother, I miss you. Look at this, I said. And then when the Red Sox won, he loved, he loved baseball. I said, you would have loved that series. Dad, you would have loved that car. Nick, you're gonna, you would have loved this Halloween. I know that your son, Jackson, who's seven, I think, had a great time. I say that out loud to force myself to bring them with me. Um, number three. This is really important to not 
just hold up and hold out the good stuff. Why, why is it that the death sometimes like instantly turns the people we love into saints? Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> What's up with that? Like all of a sudden they're just like instantly canonized or something. My practice is to go, you have to find somebody to talk to. I mean, I have been seeing a therapist for years. It's like the best thing in the world. And I've seen him every week since I came back from that funeral in August, every week. Because I need to go into the closet and haul out the skeletons and sit there with them. This is what the living need to do. To not pretend that the people we love are just somehow like, it's a magical thinking that they're just that all that stuff that was hurtful maybe or that their tempers or even that the real damage that they did is that that's gone? Friends, that's not healthy. Because if we can't accept the whole person of the people that we love to have died, here's the thing, we can't accept ourselves. We have to be a whole person in this world. I lied, I have four. The last practice is look, come. Come to things like this. I'm sure some people are like, oh man, there's the thing on death. I really don't wanna to go to that service. But here's the thing, you come for yourself here, but you stay for somebody else because in this room, when all of us are together, we can hold the grief together, right? We can hold it together. Memory shared, our memories carried. Heather, perfect segue. What are, why are the rituals around death important? And what are some of those that have been important to you? So I'm a minister, so I have a whole shtick about rituals, but I'll keep that one brief. Generally, rituals allow us to embody in the world that which we know already in our hearts. It's a way to externally manifest an internal transformation that has already taken place. Rituals connect us to one another and they symbolically move us through emotional processes. They allow us to heal and live better. Early after someone has died, rituals allow us to physically acknowledge and begin to process the fact of death. Wakes, burials, memorial services, viewing hours, sitting shiva, all of these help us to make the fact of death more real. After some time, though, rituals of remembrance allow us to feel more close to the person who died and to help us stay connected in memory and in love. So the day after my dad died, my mom and my sister Amy and I were driving home from the funeral home where we had been discussing my dad's burial. And that day was one of the most surreal and difficult days of my life. And suddenly in the car, I had this moment of crystal clarity. I want to be there when they lower his body, I said. And I want us to be the first ones to put dirt on his casket. Now I was wearing two hats, which I knew the whole time. A minister who knows how important rituals are and a daughter who just lost her dad. But this was an intuitive gut level clarity. You see, my family growing up we had buried every beloved animal companion we had ourselves. We had each taken a turn lovingly sprinkling a handful of dirt on our family members' graves. 
Burying our animals was one of the few shared rituals that my family had around death. And my mom and my sister immediately caught on to this and agreed. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you that this actually is a sadly funny story, so you have my permission to laugh, and that laughter and tears can be so healing together. So later in the week, Amy and I decided that we could not use any old dirt to bury my dad. That dirt needed to come from our backyard, the backyard where he had built a swing set and a tree house and a beautiful handmade deck where he had taught us to play soccer and baseball and we had held years of family parties. And so we got home and we went outside with a small garden spade to get some dirt from below the giant maple tree, the centerpiece of our backyard. But if any of you will remember, we failed to take into account, of course, that it was January and the ground was frozen solid. So Amy got a large shovel and I held it in place while she jumped on it. She's smaller than I am. She jumped on it and it just bounced off the ice. So we looked at each other and we, the shared look between us, we didn't say any of this, but the shared look between us said, we are John Concannon's daughters and he was nothing if not an engineer and no simple matter of physics will stop this project. So I said out loud, I'll get the crowbar. And she said, I'll get the sledgehammer. And we parted ways. <laughs> and two minutes later, we were cathartically sledgehammering frozen ground and prying chunks of earth away from the ground. And once we brought the frozen chunks inside and they started to thaw, we realized that we had mud. <laughs> and I, with my minister hat on now, imagined the sickening plop of mud falling onto the casket and I said there is no way I am inviting my grandmother to throw mud on her son's grave. <laughs> so I spent the next several hours that afternoon baking mud in the family kitchen <laughs> to restore it to a respectable consistency of dirt. And in the end, the ritual was beautiful. It was exactly what I and my family needed. And seeing his casket lowered gave me a sense of closure that I hadn't expected. I knew where he was, and I, sense of, I felt a sense of peace, heartbreak, absolute heartbreak, but also deep peace when we walked away from the cemetery, knowing that we knew where he was and we had buried him. I knew that he had a piece of our home with him and that we had blessed that dirt with our sweat and our tears and our love. So Nathan, after the burial, after the rituals, what do you think about the afterlife? Heather gave me the easy questions. <laughs> I was thinking about this and I was like, all right, I may not get the really cool car, but I, do I, as clergy, do I get like a speed pass to, you know, like Disneyland, like you get the speed pass to the front of the line of heaven? And then I'm wondering, does being Unitarian Universalist help or, or, <laughs> or does it hinder? And if it hinders, can I pull out my Catholic kid credentials? And, but will that even hinder even more? This is what you think about. Here's what I think. I don't know what I think. I don't know what to think about what I think. That's as real as I can offer you. 
I took the class in seminary that revealed to us um, that as a Jew, Jesus did not believe, because of that era in the afterlife, so much as ushering in a heaven here on earth, okay? That's what it says in the text. And the, those visions that we all might have about, you know, like chubby angels and wings and, and uh, bucolic streets of gold and harps and loved ones around us like a never-ending holiday party that to me does not sound like heaven because no one, no one goes home. They're just all there forever. <laughs> that whole image was created much, much later by church fathers, much, much later. Different era, different time, different goals. It's not one that Jesus as a Jew promised or thought of. So I remember that class, and I, and I know the science that says how the light that some of us see after death is just neurons firing and the last burst of life. I have been present at, at count, more than I can count when people have died. I've been there next to them. And, I've, and I don't get it, my friends. I've seen how the person is there, and then they're gone. And I don't, I don't understand it. I don't know how to reconcile how we, how you and I can be so transcendent with our life, how we can love and, and notice th beauty and how we can impact people, how we can literally inspire, we can breathe out our life to other people beyond our life. I don't understand how all of that can be true and how we can bless and be blessed and be so generous. I, I don't understand how all of that can be true and then to be gone. I don't understand it. I have felt the presence of loved ones next to me even though they are gone from me in a physical way. I don't understand it. But somehow, I know this, I feel like we are more than blood and skin and cells and pulse. I just do. And death may only be a horizon. And a horizon may only be as far as we can see with our eyes. And there are things beyond. That's what I believe. Heather, last question. How can we support others that we are grieving? In particular, what not to say? All right. Shortly after my dad died, my sister's partner mentioned that in a crisis, some people in your life become the firefighters and some become builders. Firefighters show up right after a crisis, helping to stabilize things. They simply know what is needed in that time. They come and sit with you all night when you get the news. They go to Bed Bath & Beyond at 10 p.m. when you realize that there aren't enough beds in the house and you need an air mattress. They bring food and rides and make calls for you. But firefighters don't stay forever. Some people are builders, and builders are in it for the long haul. They are there to help us find the new normal. They are the people who call weekly and go on walks, who know that you are thinking about your loss far after the memorial service is over, who tenderly ask you how you're doing, who don't put a timeline on grief. Because just like our New Orleans trip volunteers who are bringing our church with them to New Orleans this week, 
Just as they know, it takes a long time. It takes years and decades to rebuild after a loss. And we need both types of people in the world and in our lives, firefighters and builders, people who are there in a crisis and people who are there in the long haul. And yes, someone can do both, but it often surprises us who shows up to which role and who doesn't show up at all. And I can say for certain that showing up imperfectly is better than not showing up at all. And we live in a culture that can tell us that we need to fix brokenness, that can cause us to be uncomfortable with things that cannot be fixed, like death. And yet when we try to fix another person's grief or explain it away or make meaning for another person, we diminish their opportunity to really feel the depth of their loss and to really process it in their own time and to heal by working through it. And so, as Nathan promised, some things not to say to a grieving person, and I have heard many variations of these, and I know that you likely have as well. Things not to say include, number one, God has a plan. Number two, there is a reason for everything. She is in a better place. She brought this on herself. You can still have another child. Are you over it yet? Things to say instead include, I am so sorry for your loss. I don't know how you feel, but I'm here to help in however I can. You, you've been in my thoughts. My favorite memory of your mom was this. I know it will be hard to manage the house alone. Can I arrange for someone to plow your driveway this winter? I'm only a phone call away. Beloved, whether we are the grievers or the firefighters or the builders, we know that we need one another to remind each other of the love that is holding us always and to let us rest in that love.